After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now we're moving to verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing, as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed only out, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. As I was reflecting on this, reading it this week, I was imagining, I like to imagine, you know, being in the story, and I was imagining if Jesus were here physically, can you, and we could hear his audible voice, we would know the difference because it's, it's the voice of God the creator of the universe and our savior, our redeemer and counselor, we would know his voice. Um, and as believers, it might not be this physical form of Jesus up here, but we get the privilege of hearing and knowing the voice of God. You know, in John 10, Jesus says, my sheep follow me, they know my voice. Um, and so part of that happens instantaneously, right? When we accept Christ and we um, give our lives to him and the Holy Spirit comes into us, we're no longer deceived, like it says in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We're no longer deceived. So we can discern the voice of God. We have the ability. But it's also gradual, right? As we're sanctified, as we get to know Jesus and our relationship with him, we can hear the voice of God more clearly. And uh, there are a lot of voices that are coming at us, right? Right? <laughs> 
um, either uh, outside of us or inside of us, <laughs> our own sinful nature, and we can easily get distracted or even deceived um, by all those other voices. So I think a lot of, for me at least, and maybe for you, the cry of my heart is often, Lord, how can I more clearly hear your voice? How can I hear that voice of authority that I know that I need? Um, and I love Eugene Peterson. He created this compound word, a new one. Um, he says, prayer scripture, or you can reverse it, scripture prayer is the most essential part of discipleship. And that is simply where we're talking to God and personally interacting with his word um, on our own. It's just us and God. And this is the voice of God speaking to us. All right. Um, and, and I think sometimes we hear that and then we go off and we don't really know what does that look like. So um, I wanted to give testimony to just a couple of ways that that has helped that uh, I, I hear God speaking to me. And one is I'll take a verse with me wherever I go. Right. So like last few weeks, Isaiah 30, 15 says in repentance and rest is your salvation in quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. And so I've meditated on that a lot, and God's shown me, like, okay, at this moment, you're not trusting me. You're not being quiet. You're not trusting me. And so then you're acting out of fear and anxiety and making decisions that are not um, faithful, right? And not, not full of faith, that's what I mean, right? Like I'm making decisions for my own comfort or safety that maybe he doesn't want me to make. Um, but this week I was driving in the car and thinking about these verses, and it wasn't something specific to these verses. But I was going to get my hair cut, and I realized I was like praying about just my day, and God said, your day? <laughs> Lord, this is not your day. This is my day for you. You're going to get your hair cut. Did you remember you're a messenger for me? Like the people at that salon, every, you're supposed to have your eyes open, your ears up. You're supposed to be praying for them. Like as you're driving to the salon, you're supposed to be praying for the people. And I was so convicted. And it wasn't even related to that specific verse, but I was meditating on that verse. So I had the word of God in me and I was interacting with him. The other way uh, is fasting. And Laura Murray, she was just over here. She's not here today, but... Um, her and I were part of a group a few years ago, and we did uh, like a prayer and fast thing, a communal one, where one day a week we would pray for revival in Sparta and fast. And we didn't talk about the details about, the, about fasting, what we fasted from, but, um, you know, the group prayer was specifically for the revival of the community, but the fasting was for the revival of our own hearts. And, it, you know, I just realized Lent was coming up. I'd, not a big like calendar year person with a, but um, maybe that's the time. But fasting is a way to silence those other voices because whatever you're fasting from, whatever you're like seeking instead of God is gone. And so you tune in, you know, you tune into God. And actually that's um, specifically in Deuteronomy 8, and that's what I'm going to close with and pray for us is um, before an 8 teaches is, or preaches, is Deuteronomy 8.3. Um, you can go there if you like, but I have it written out. It says, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Amen. Isn't that what we want to live on? Help us, Lord. So I'm going to pray for us, and Nate's going to come up. Father God, Lord, 
You are so awesome. Lord, we love you so much. You are our creator, uh, our friend. You're, without you, we'd be lost forever. And we don't understand why you uh, chose us by name and love us so intimately, but all we want to do is return that love and live for you. And so today we know one of the things that, that blocks our relationship with you is uh, unconfessed sin, and a lot of times we don't even know we have it. Surrender to you. We need to repent, as Jesus called in this passage. Um, and Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would make, uh, make those areas known to us right now in this room, and that we would be revived in our own hearts for you. We thank you for this beautiful church and uh, the faithful leaders of it, and we pray for their protection and for um, this whole community, that you would bless us, help us to encourage one another, edify one another. In your name we pray, amen. One of the things that I'm struck with regularly is as I engage text and we do community together is the, the perspective that different people, different voices have as we engage the same text and we wrestle with the same text and we learn to understand how the Spirit of God is leading and guiding in that. We're working through this series that we've called Urgent and we're investigating the suffering Messiah. It is a look at Mark's gospel. It's probably the first gospel that was written, uh, probably written about 23 years after the resurrection and uh, Mark would have probably gotten his firsthand accounts about the life of Christ from Peter and so you see Mark's focus primarily being on the fact that this Messiah is different than what the people expected. He is a uniquely different Messiah than what they thought had been promised to them. And this Jesus comes and he ultimately suffers in a way that they never anticipated the Messiah would suffer. But the primary focus of Mark's gospel is this. Uh, there's been a wonderful quote that's passed around for a long time that says this, when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. And I think that's Mark's perspective on the Messiah because what we see through the Gospel of Mark is we see pieces and parts of Jesus' teaching. But Mark is primarily focused on what did Jesus do? And because when we focus on what Jesus did, it does two things. It reveals the character, right? Because actions don't lie. It reveals the character and it validates the message. It reveals the character of this man, and it ultimately validates what Jesus said about himself, what he declares about himself. And so as we work through this series together, I want us to keep coming back to what does Jesus' actions tell us about him? And what we'll see on Easter Sunday is that if you just take what was traditionally given to us in the Gospel of, of Mark, when the women showed up at the tomb that Easter resurrection morning, they left bewildered and confused trying to make sense out of what had just happened because Jesus had prophesied that this was going to happen and now it had transpired and now the question is what now? Where do we go from here? Uh, so as we get into this, let, let's start here. Take a look at this picture if you would. What do you see on this picture? Many of you have probably seen this go around the internet for a while. What do you see in this picture? Yes, you see a dog chasing a bird. But what else do you see? You see a dog that is chasing a bird whose appetite got away from him. 
You see a dog that's chasing a bird that had the power to catch the bird. The problem is the power being used to catch the bird ended up in the dog's demise. So here's what I want to make the case for this morning. I think this picture perfectly reflects one singular thing. That's this, the misalignment of power and purpose. A misalignment of power and purpose. Just because the dog had the power to catch the bird doesn't mean he had the purpose to catch the bird. Because the misalignment of power and purpose ultimately ended in his demise. In fact, I'm going to make this case as we go through this this morning, that the gap between power and purpose is corrosive and destructive. The gap between the power that we wield and the purpose that God has given us, that whatever the gap is, whatever the misalignment is between the two of them, it corrupts us and it destroys us and those around us. See, as we go through the Gospels, one of the things that we have to do is we have to recognize that the Gospels that are given to us about Jesus are not just about Jesus being a good example for us. That's a, that's a faulty way of operating, right? So, so this idea that, that we shouldn't take the Gospels literally and or whatever we do pull from the Gospels is just that, that Jesus was a social justice warrior who did good things and we need to follow his example. It's so much more than that because what we recognize in the Gospels is that Jesus was uniquely different and that what he provided for us was a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice that provided us access to God that we would have no other access to. And that Jesus ultimately came to accomplish what we could not accomplish for ourselves. So the Gospels are not just about Jesus being a good example, but it's also not less than that. That there's something about what Jesus showcases in the Gospels that is a model, it is a reflection of who it is that we're created to be because what Paul tells us in Romans 8 is that ultimately God has preordained that those of us who have trusted in Christ would eventually become shaped and transformed to the image of Jesus and that we would begin to live out this example in a very specific way. And so the, the model that's given to us of this suffering Messiah, especially in the passage that we're going to take a look at this morning and we just heard Laura reflect on, is that Jesus had incredible power he also had a specific purpose, and he understood uniquely how to allow those two things to be aligned. And so what I want to do for just a moment is just reflect on the fact that, that in many ways, we have a greater power than what we think we have. Think about this for a second. Any of you that are married, you wield power in that relationship. You wield power in the ability to give life to your spouse or to frustrate and crush their spirit. You have the power to encourage and to support and serve as a springboard for them and the things that they need to go accomplish and fulfilling their God-given purpose. And you have the ability to be quicksand that they get stuck in and that they have a hard time operating in because of the way that you relate to them. In friendships, we have the power, again, to be encouraging, to be supportive, to be life-giving in the way that we relate to people. And we also have the power to be soul-crushing and destructive in the way that we relate to people. As a parent, I know it doesn't matter whether you've got young children, adolescent children, or adult children. As a parent, you wield incredible power in the way in which you relate to your kids and the ability to invest in them and offer them something substantive in the way that you can either crush them or empower them. Children, you have incredible influence on your parents. You start out by deciding whether or not they're going to sleep through the night. 
And then from that point on, you have even more power that you wield in the way that you can influence your parents. We all have finances, and we have the power to wield those finances. And many of us will say, I don't have much power. But the truth is that uniquely you have a financial power that very few people in this world have access to. And the question is, how do you wield that power? And again, if you don't wield that power for the purpose that it's caused, it causes corruption to you and destruction to those around you. All of us have platforms. All of us have been given platforms in relationships, in the work environment, in the business environments, that we have the ability to leverage, to influence, and to wield that power in a specific way. But we also have the ability to wield that power in a destructive way. We have gifts and abilities. We have the power of our tongue to give life to others, Scripture says. The question is, do we understand the power that we possess, and do we understand the purpose for which it was given to us? Because when there's a gap between those two, it is corrosive and it is destructive. And the truth is, we all possess more power than we think we do. And unfortunately, when we will power without a clear understanding of our purpose, there is a lot of pain that comes as a result of that. So let's jump into the text that Laura read for us. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Jesus begins his teaching ministry. And it says this, after John, John the Baptist, was put in prison... There's a lot there. John was put in prison because he was actually proclaiming specific things about the uh, infidelity of Herod and the, the illegitimacy of his marriage. And so he was put into prison because of that. When he was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And so we see Jesus' teaching ministry launched. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, Jesus uses very specific language when he uses the term time here, it's not, it's five o'clock, something's now going to happen. It was a very specific terminology for time, uh, basically looking at this idea of there's an appointed time that God has ordained for something to happen. It's that promised time that God, that God has been prophesying through the prophets, and that time has finally arrived. He's referring to a moment of divine fulfillment here. But watch how the people respond to his teaching. Here's what we read in verse 21 to 22. They went to Capernaum, and so Jesus goes, and he, he actually calls his first couple of disciples, and they follow him, and so they to collectively go to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Again, continuing this same message. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And that word authority is actually the word for power. That there's something about the way that Jesus was teaching with unique power. That it wasn't manipulative. It wasn't persuasive because it was well-crafted language necessarily. Although God is a perfect artist. So I would assume that Jesus had incredible uh, creativity in the way that he expressed himself here. But there's a power in the, what Jesus is saying and doing. And the people respond by saying there's something about his message and the way that he preaches with unique power. And then Mark stops talking about Jesus' ministry here, and he moves to something completely different. And again, this is where Mark is going to give us snapshots. You don't have the long, drawn-out teachings that Matthew has crafted on the Sermon on the Mount, where it covers multiple chapters, where Jesus continues to teach. Mark wasn't concerned about that. Mark was concerned about, I want to give you ideas of what Jesus says about himself, what Jesus declares is most important. And then I want to show you what Jesus did and what he did continue to validate what he said. 
And so what we see in the next several verses, verses 23 to 26, is that Jesus basically, he, he, he ultimately cast out a demon of a demonized man. And we see that encounter. Then Jesus goes into Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law was staying with Peter and Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then we're told in verses 32-34 that many people came looking for Jesus and that he was, began to heal many ailments. He cast out more demons. We'll look at this in a few minutes more closely, but then we see at the end of this text the man with leprosy that Jesus heals. And so when we read this in verses 27 and 28, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, with power, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Again, he's teaching with authority and then he's casting out demons. He's showcasing that authority. News about him spread quickly throughout the whole region in Galilee. And then we read that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door looking for Jesus to bring healing into their lives. See, Jesus taught with power and possessed the power to cure every natural and demonic malady. Yet his purpose kept him from harnessing that power for self-preservation. Jesus, and this is, the, this is the interesting part about Jesus, teaching and his works, a miraculous works ministry, is that Jesus, we see it, you see a couple of times where Jesus forgives sins, and in the forgiveness of sins, he also brings healing into someone's life, and the, the, somehow there's this, this pushback by the religious leaders saying, you don't have the authority to forgive sins, and yet what Jesus is doing over and over and over again is he's showcasing that he has both the power to forgive sins, and he has the power to overcome the consequences of sin. Don't miss this. That throughout Jesus' teaching ministry is that Jesus has the ability through his miraculous works to not just declare that he is the one who's come to forgive sins, but that every form of malady, every corrosive element of sin, that Jesus has the power to overcome every one of those. See, this is why we have a great hope. Because we believe that Jesus is the one who has come to conquer death. He's the one who's come to conquer sin. And he is the one who has the power to completely restore things in spite of whatever sin has done to us. In fact, 2 Peter tells us that however bad the world is, that God has reigned in evil to a certain point where the world will never be as evil as it could be because God has domain over that, even at the point where we watch sin and corruption play out in such atrocious forms in this world. That Jesus has the power to teach and to preach, but he also has the ability to, to fix, to overcome, to mend and restore every form of brokenness in this world. But, as we're going to see at the end of Mark's gospel, as we see at the end of Jesus' story on this earth, is that Jesus did not ever use that power for self-preservation. In fact, Jesus used his power to stay on the cross, not to get off the cross, or to avoid the cross altogether. But I want, you to, I want you to take a note of this because this is where we go from Jesus' power to now Jesus having a keen understanding of his purpose. Take a look at this if you would. There's three different places in this text where we see Jesus, we see him showing us his purpose in a very specific way. Verses 24 and 25. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? He's talking, the demons are talking to him. 
I know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus says to them, be quiet. He says sternly to them. They are declaring who Jesus is, and Jesus tells the demons to shut up. Why? Because he doesn't want that to be necessarily made public yet. Verse 34, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Again, reigning in, letting that all get out publicly. And then in verse 30, 43, we see in that healing of the man with leprosy, Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. And the man directly disobeys because he goes out and tells everybody about what has just happened to him, which is why we then read at the end that Jesus could no longer be in public spaces, walk into towns freely because of the overflow of response of the people because they were starting to see and hear all of what Jesus was doing. See, Jesus had such a clear focus on his purpose, he strategically emphatically resisted popularity and self-exaltation. There is something about our culture, whether it be through social media, whether it be just through our, our, our brand recognition, there's something about any power that I possess is designed to make my name great, to make me known. In fact, I believe one of the greatest sources of anxiety in our world today is the incredible, desperate plea of individuals on social media to get as many clicks and likes and responses as possible. The desperate need for that, and there is an insatiable appetite for that because self-exaltation and growing in my popularity tells me that I matter. It tells me that I have meaning. It tells me that I have significance. It tells me that my, word, my, my life has worth maintaining. And Jesus had this unbelievable ability because he understood who he was and what he had come to accomplish to allow his power and his purpose to be aligned in such a way where he resisted popularity. He resisted self-exaltation. He showcases what it's like to say, I'm going to go do things and I want to make sure that this is not made public at least yet because he recognized that there was a time coming when it would be put on full display and that time would necessitate a different response from him. But in these early days, Jesus is saying, do not go make these things public because he understood that it would limit what he was able to have access to. It would limit his ability to operate freely and ultimately it compromised certain things about what he was trying to accomplish. He understood that his purpose, that he strategically came to offer something and it was not to allow his popularity and his self-exaltation to get away from it. In fact, we see this as his popularity starts to grow. Watch what he does in verse 35. This is such an interesting moment. Jesus' response to his popularity growing and people starting to see and respond to him, he says this, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. That term solitary place is the exact same term that's used for the wilderness that the, that the, Holy, that the Holy Spirit drove him into, by the way. So Jesus goes to a deserted place to a solitary place where he began to pray. And Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they explained what? Everyone is looking for you. Jesus, your popularity is growing. Jesus, people are responding to you. This movement that you're trying to launch, you're finally getting people to clue into that. And people are starting to take hold of this. And they're following after you. This movement is taking off. And Jesus goes... Yeah, I've got other things I need to be doing right now. 
and he pulls away to pray. It didn't take long for Jesus' popularity to gain traction. After attracting the crowds, he steals away to a quiet place. Jesus uses the, a term here when the disciples are looking for him um, that, that it says when they, when they went to look for him, it's a term that's actually used kind of like for a bounty hunter looking for a criminal. That they went looking for him, searching for him, desperate to get him back to where he, they thought he was supposed to be, which is where? Performing for the crowds. And what's Jesus doing? He's praying. What's Jesus doing? Spending time in solitude and silence. Why? Because he recognized that there was no ability to optimize his power and to fulfill his purpose if he didn't spend time with his father. It's interesting that, that I find this compelling. There are people that have really important jobs. They have really significant ministries. They have all of these wonderful things that are going on and they're accomplishing great things. And what they'll say is, I'm so busy that I do not have time for what? personal devotional life, personal prayer life. I don't have time to do the disciplines because I'm doing all of these things. I'm not sure there's anybody that was more significant at what they were doing than Jesus was. In fact, I know that to be true. And what did Jesus understood? That the more that the ministry grew, the more he needed to pull away for silence and solitude and prayerful reflection. I don't care how busy you are. I don't care how consequential what you're doing is. The truth is if we are not spending time recalibrating spending time in quiet, spending time connecting with the Father and regaining our equilibrium, we will never fulfill our purpose. In fact, the gap between your power and your purpose starts to go wider and wider to the point where we've seen corruption happen because the chasm becomes so great that now there is all of this power that's being wielded. The influence, the charisma, the resources are there, but they can no longer fulfill their purpose. Why? Because they stopped recalibrating and they stopped reflecting on who Jesus is and what he's come to offer and why it is that they wield the power in the first place. See, I believe it this, I believe this. A clear sense of purpose will lead to prioritizing emotional and spiritual health over maximizing popularity and opportunities for advancement. You will say no to opportunities for advancement if you understand your purpose. You'll understand when to say no. You will recognize that if I have a clear sense of purpose, there are moments and times when you simply can't go maximize the opportunities in front of you. That you will prioritize your emotional and your spiritual health and it will limit your pursuit of certain opportunities. You will choose to not go make as much money as you possibly can. You will choose to not take advantage of the opportunities that are afforded you on certain situations. You will make sacrifices if you understand a clear sense of purpose for which God has given you. Because in so many ways, every one of us sitting in this room have God-given power and a God-given purpose. And the truth is, the only question at the end of the day with what Jesus showcased is, do we understand how to align them or not? Because if we don't understand how to align them, there is all kinds of damage that will come from them. And then I love, because Jesus understood his purpose, you see this beautiful, tender moment between Jesus and the man with leprosy. In verses 40 to 45, we read this. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant, and that 
English, some, the English translations usually do a better job than this. That indignation there is not a negative, reactive indignation. It's that he was moved with compassion. That there's a deep emotive response from Jesus here. That Jesus saw this man, saw his suffering, and was moved with compassion. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. Don't miss this. In the entire Old Testament, anything that was unclean that would touch something that was clean, the clean thing became unclean. Throughout the entire Old Testament, if there was something that was unclean and it touched something that was clean, by definition, that thing that was clean now was unclean. And here we see Jesus completely changing the rules. We see Jesus completely changing the rules. The entire religious system in this moment is being turned upside down. Where Jesus reaches out his hand. What, what's going on here? You, if leprosy, there had to be, they had to wear bells on them to make sure people knew that they were coming because they had to stay so far away from people. They had to walk to the other side of the street. They could not be in public spaces because nobody could even get too close to them. Why? Because of the fear that they would end up getting leprosy and or they would just be unclean because they were too close to somebody with leprosy. And Jesus, because he understood his purpose and because he understood his power, Jesus reaches out his hand. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone, tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. You see this incredible moment where Jesus' power and Jesus' purpose align so beautifully. Where Jesus decides to change the entire conversation, the entire religious system as the Jews knew it. And he decided to be as the clean one to touch an unclean one and the unclean one became clean because of Jesus touching him. Can I, can I suggest this? There's more here for us as well. Because there's this weird idea in conservative settings is that we need to avoid any association with anyone or anything that is unclean. That we need to stay away from anyone or anything that we would deem to be illicit or not in alignment with God's design. Can I just tell you that if I have the Spirit of God within me and if I am following the suffering Messiah... The willingness to associate with myself with those that Jesus was willing to associate with, the sinner, the tax collector, the prostitute, whatever other social class that was deemed to be outsiders over and over again in the Gospel of Luke and Mark a little bit, we see that those that were deemed to be on the inside regularly on the outside looking in and those that were considered to be on the outside, Jesus was the one who consistently brought them in. And again, I'm not suggesting that we throw out morality. I'm not suggesting that we dismiss our responsibility to walk in faithful obedience. But I am suggesting this, that I need to be somebody who is willing to be accused of getting too close, of being present with, and accept that that's part of the deal of following Jesus. And if I'm not willing to do that, I cannot follow. I cannot take up my cross and follow. 
the suffering Messiah. These wonderful ways in which we've created these rigid separations and the us and them terminology and all of the, 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 the indictments that we put on other people to justify our removal from them and no need to associate with them. Jesus did not operate that way because he understood both his power and his purpose because he understood how to align those two and he said, now follow me. Now follow me and align those two, which means you wield power where you have the ability to speak into certain situations where you can offer encouragement. But more than that, that you can offer an opportunity for justice to be realized. Where you can love somebody and reflect the love of God in a specific way and allow for that person to now have a new category about what a faith real, really looks like rather than the religious structures that they've been exposed to up until that point. And Jesus showcases this in a powerful way. In fact, I, I believe it this way. Our commitment to a purpose brings clarity in unsettling circumstances. Sanctions, irresponsible risks, and maximizes impact. When I understand my purpose and I have clarity about my purpose, it allows me to respond not frightful, not reactive, not terrified in unsettling circumstances where Jesus is approached with a man with leprosy and, and says, hey, I want you to heal me. Jesus responds that he knows how to respond to that. I truly believe that because we don't understand our purpose. I love Laura's example of driving to the salon and, and the responsibility. What is my purpose for going to that salon in the first place? Yep, I want to get my hair done. But man, the purpose is so much bigger than that. And the power that I wield in that environment is so much bigger than that, that our commitment to a purpose and to the purpose of following Jesus brings clarity in unsettling circumstances, sanctions what some may deem to be irresponsible risks. I believe this. If you've never been accused of taking an irresponsible risk, you're not following Jesus. And I mean that honestly. If nobody in your life ever has the ability to say, why would you do that? That's counterintuitive. That's counterproductive. That's an irrational, irresponsible risk. If you've never had people question you for that, then there is something missing about what it means for you to fulfill your purpose and wield the power that God has given you to do that. People should be questioning the weirdness with how you are generous with your time, with your talents, and with your resources. People should question that. And if people look at you and say, yeah, that makes sense to me, there's something missing. Because we follow a Messiah who took irresponsible risks, who showcased a reckless love, knowing that he was sovereign and that he was operating and he had a purpose, but at the end of the day, he was willing to love without expectation of reciprocation or without needing the reciprocation to simply offer the love and then invited people to respond to it over and over and over again. The cross of Christ was him pouring out that love and making it available to the masses and then allowing for people to respond to it. So let's just spend a couple of minutes aligning power and purpose. How do I do that? How do I align my power and my purpose? How do I follow Christ's example? We're gonna get to the fact that it's not good enough just to follow his example because what Christ did is so much more than that. But let's at least consider for a few moments what does it look like for me to align my power and purpose? I want you to elbow somebody nicely next to you and I want you to say, you have power and you have purpose. Somebody next to you, 
Now I want you to do this. You have more power and a greater purpose than you think you do. You have more power and a greater purpose than you think you do. There you go. So let's talk about it for a minute. The first thing that I think you've got to do if you're going to align power and purpose is you've got to see your power as stewardship with incredible responsibility. I think you have to see the power that you possess as a stewardship. God has given it to me. Again, we live in the most affluent country in the world with the greatest advantages in the world. And the question that I ask all the time is, why did God put me in the front of the line? Why? Why do I get to be in the top 3% of money earners in this world? Why do I get to be at a place where the geographic lottery continues to show up, whether it be through COVID or any other major thing that we've been through? Why is it that I'm here? And how do I steward that in a way that's not going to be corrosive to my heart or destructive to the people in my life? How do I manage that? How do I see that as a stewardship? And how do I sacrificially leverage what he has given me? When we do not see our power as a stewardship, we will only use it for our own selfish gain. Our power as a stewardship with incredible responsibility. The second, consider, just spend a few moments considering the potential harm that your power can wield if it's not aligned with your purpose. It doesn't take long to look at the news. It doesn't take long to look around you and recognize what's the potential harm that could happen if I take my time, my abilities, my gifts, my resources, and I just use them for my own self-interest. What's the potential harm that can come from that? Just go start looking at what's going on in this world. Here's the third one. Forgive me for this one because it's me too. Get over yourself. It's not about you. We talk all the time about we want to go from being consumers to investors. If we're going to become people that are conduits and instruments of God's grace in our lives, we're hoses rather than buckets, where we're taking what God has given us and we're pouring it into the lives of other people. The truth is I have to get over myself. I have to stop focusing on myself, my own self-advancement, my own ability to feel good about everything that's going on in my life, my own emotional world as the primary thing that drives my decision-making, and my ability to feel secure and comfortable in every arena. Get over yourself. Nate, get over yourself. Number four, spiritual habits clarify purpose and rightly orient our power. Jesus, when he started to see the popularity increase, Jesus' first response is to pull away into silence and solitude and into prayerful reflection with his Father. Our spiritual lives, our spiritual habits help to clarify our purpose and rightly orient our power. Fasting, prayer, scripture reading, a willingness to just sit in quiet contemplation. And then here's the one that I want to land on. Our purpose moves us from trying to training. Our purpose moves us from trying to training. Meaning we can try a lot of different things and we can try to be successful at a lot of things, but when we start to understand our purpose and then we try new things and we fail, we're not failing, we're just training. Because I'm never losing. If I'm trying and I'm learning, I'm never losing. Which means I have the opportunity to step into a new ministry environment, to step into a new leadership role, to step into a new opportunity. And I don't have to be successful because that success isn't going to go to my head and that failure isn't going to go to my heart. I can start training. 
And I can start to acknowledge that in that process, I'm going to fail. I love the, this perspective. It's been said so well that if I'm ever going to be really good at anything, I've got to look like an idiot doing it for a while. You've got to fall. You've got to struggle. You've got to stumble. But if you're going to try something new, you've got to be comfortable not being awesome at it. Am I willing to step out? Am I willing to leverage? There's so often that we are so driven by fear and we're so afraid of our reputation or, or somehow people's view of us being tainted that we're not willing to try something new. Some of you should be teaching upstairs in our children's ministry and you've not done it because you're scared of looking silly doing it. Some of you should have stepped into a leadership role in this environment or in the community or in your workplace and you won't do it because you're afraid of the, of the response. You're so afraid of success. You're more afraid of success than you are failure because you're afraid that if I'm successful that there's more expectations that are going to come. And I don't know what to do with that. Some of you have systematically eliminated risks. This is just how we do life. We're so good at this. And the truth is that Jesus just offers us something better. In fact, when you understand Jesus' alignment of his power and his purpose, then, then what we see is what Luke says in Luke 9.51. It says this, When the days drew near, again, because Jesus understood his power and his purpose, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He set his face, and the, the terminology here is like a, like a hunting dog, focused on going after the target and just waiting for the opportunity. Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, meaning this, that Jesus knew exactly how things would end when he got to Jerusalem. That Jesus knew that if he went to Jerusalem, that he was going to be assassinated. And that Jesus was going to have to leverage his power, not to protect himself from harm, but to allow himself to be harmed and ultimately to be assassinated. And that Jesus' alignment of his power and his purpose put him on the cross didn't keep him from the cross and kept him on the cross rather than calling 10,000 angels to come get him off the cross. I truly believe there is something about the Christian life that forces me to come to grips with the stewardship of the power that I possess and then a willingness to ask one simple question, God, what is the purpose of that power that you've given to me and what am I supposed to do with it so that in the midst of that I can reflect you that I can impact lives. I can maximize the impact you've given me. I'll take seemingly irresponsible risks, ultimately for the sake of his great name.